Hi, everybody. Welcome back to episode 11 of Lara Chat Live. Um, I am happy to be here, and we have a couple new guests. First and foremost, we have uh, Dan Lovito. He is a member on our forum, Lara Chat. Uh, he decided to pop on. He's got some DevOps experience. We've got Riz, who everybody knows and loves. And then we have our other guest, uh, Ryan McLean. He is a member on one of my other Slack chats called DevOps Chat. And he is um, you know, a DevOps professional. So what we wanted to do was uh, talk about DevOps from a web development perspective. Uh, it's a lot of us just code and program every day. And sometimes we don't really know too much about what's going on on the DevOps side of the world. We rely on Laravel Forge or uh, whatever other script are out there. So wanted to get some uh, information from Dan and Ryan about what advice they could pass to us as web developers. So uh, first and foremost, Dan, uh, tell me, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself here. I don't want to go into too much advice here. Um, I'm a front-end developer by a... My mic's not muted. I just unmuted it. Did I mess oh. it up? There you go. Yeah, oh, there we go. Okay. Um, <laughs> that took a little bit. Um, I'm a front-end developer by day, and uh, I do... Laravel and PHP development at night. Uh, currently developing an app called, or an API called uh, Weatherbolt, which you can find at weatherbolt.co, and that's a large-scale weather API that'll give you a lot of local information as far as where you're from in the United States, and it will be expanding out to UK and Canada. Also does geocoding. Um, that's really it. That's pretty much what I do. I'm married, got two kids, and uh, I'm an all-around swell guy. And that's it. I can't attest to the swellness of you. I refuse I to. I made it up. I made it up. Beyond that, uh, we've also got Ryan. Ryan, how about a little blurb about who you are and what, what you're uh, known for? Sure thing. Uh, my name's Ryan McLean, obviously. I work with a company called Samsung uh, Research Canada. Basically, we're a small arm of Samsung that is a bunch of projects. Uh, the main ones that I work on are Samsung Pay, some stuff with SmartThings, and Product that's maybe a little bit more known in the enterprise space called Samsung Knox, which involves security. Day to day, I, I wear a lot of hats, so might be DevOps, might be Ops, might be on call, that kind of stuff. Uh, monitoring, reporting, lots of meetings with partners, that kind of thing. Uh, you can see I'm at work, so I'm wearing the good old college shirt here. But yeah, that's that's basically it. Um, I've been in the industry for about 15 years now, starting in the uh, Solera Sun kind of Unix world. Went to the Mac world, went to the Windows world, and finally the uh, Linux world. That's about it. Sean? Uh, okay. That's all right. Thanks, Ryan. I'll just go, jump in straight ahead to our news segment today. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, just for those who are tuning in for the first time, we always do a quick news about the last two weeks or so and development stuff. So I'm just going to go and go straight in. Again, if you have any questions or for the community Q&A at the end, go ahead and join us on Slack and just go to that channel. That actually, that actually might be reversed. I'll have to check that later. But uh, we'll just go ahead and go to our live channel on Slack. And for today's news, first of all, this is a bit old, but GitHub has changed over their, uh, their plan format. This is actually like three or four weeks old by now. But they've changed it so you can pay $7 a month flat, and you get as many repositories as you want. Before this, you had to pay um, a certain tier for a certain number of repositories. So 
lot of services integrate with GitHub nowadays. And if you want to be using one of them at $7 a month, I think it's now near the no-brainer point. It's probably cheaper than your web hosting at this point. So that's great. Uh, second news is that TeamViewer may have been hacked. I'm not sure. We can't really tell because we don't want to admit if they have been hacked. But there's a lot of information later on. Uh, you can check it out on Reddit. It's all over the place that people are getting hijacked. Their computers are coming alive at 3 AM doing PayPal purchases. So if you're using TeamViewer for yourself, your family, or your client, it's probably a good idea to at least check, make sure there's no fraudulent credit card stuff going on, the usual. Um, it's, a bit, it's a bit unfortunate, because TeamViewer was a really popular remote helping tool. And a lot of clients and developers used it for contacting their clients when they can't set something up. So check it out. Microsoft acquires LinkedIn for, I don't know, like $20 billion or something. That's like $60 a user. Uh, we have no idea what they're going to do with it. Uh, the best guess we have is that they're going to integrate it with Windows, and we'll probably have some nice new Windows Live something something LinkedIn going on, but that just happened. In other news, and probably more Laravel news, Laravel 5.3 will be coming out later this year, and Laracon is coming up soon as well. There have been discussions about sneak previews and demos at Laracon, so if you're going to Laracon, check out Laravel 5.3. And finally, According to the CEO of the New York Times, adblock users will be banned. Now, this is a this is a big subject we might talk about uh, specifically on the chat one day about ads on our websites. But there's a growing trend right now among publishers to just ban users who use adblockers. So if you want to do that, I guess you, now you have your precedent. If you don't like that, now you have your your internet crusade to do. So Sean, go ahead. I think we have some new supporters and. Yeah, so we, on the GitHub note, we have a whole bunch of codes and accounts that we can give away, um, but we're not going to do one today. Um, we, I don't know how many we have left, 50-something codes that we can give away to people, and we're going to start doing that. What, what the plan is and what the goal is, is to relaunch our site and then do all our giveaways. And uh, getting the site together has been a bit more difficult than I imagine to find the time uh, with work and family constraints. Um, but we are going to uh, focus on getting that done, and we'll start doing all these giveaways, uh, especially to get uh, the personal level GitHub account. I also wanted to make a note on the um, LinkedIn Microsoft integrations. I, I really hope that we see a, uh, a Clippy version for LinkedIn, uh, you know, something to help you know new people get their LinkedIn set up and you know, pop up, hi, how can I help you? How can I set up your job profile today? That'd be awesome. What would you call it? Linky? <laughs> Link <laughs> Linky? It could just be a little link that just, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to stick with Linky. I like that better. Um, so let's get into our topic. One of the big things is uh, the DevOps side of things. It's a new buzzword that I think has been coming around for the last few years, which in my opinion, has uh, formerly was more of a systems administration role, which, Ryan, I'm sure you can uh, give me a better background about what what is DevOps. Uh, yeah, I guess it. the answer might be it depends. So it depends who you ask. Uh, for me, personally, I, I tend to call DevOps something different. So I'll, I'll call it CAMS. And the reason I, I try to do that is to stay away from the fact that it doesn't just apply to DevOps for me personally. 
So what CAM stands for and what I think DevOps is trying to do is culture, automation, measurement, and sharing. And I think those four principles apply to most of your organization, not just dev, not just ops. I think you could find that your QA, your performance engineering, your HR, your management could actually benefit from all four of these principles. And those really lie at the heart of DevOps. Uh, that, that's how that's my take on it, basically, and how it applies to Dev and Ops should be not obvious, but should be pretty reasonable to figure out. Uh, so culture, basically, you know, don't throw things over the fence, don't be a dick, uh, don't don't be an asshole. Just try to be like a, a nice person, someone who actually you can communicate with at work, who doesn't necessarily mean uh, like the, the house of no kind of thing. If you're thinking about your security team or your ops team, that might be how people normally think of them. In terms of automation, obviously you've seen a lot of uh, work in Chef, Puppet, Salt, Ansible, lots of things like the scripting languages to set things up in the cloud, uh, the local cloud or on-premise services. Measurement and automation uh, sort of go hand in hand, but on the measurement side, you'd see things like uh, the Elk stack's quite popular, at least in this space. And then sharing, you know, you just get stuff out there. I think we were talking about it, GitHub earlier, though, but this is a pretty instrumental tool in in the DevOps space. And those are basically some examples of, of how I see this fitting into DevOps. So I, I don't think it's actually limited to Dev or Ops, which is why I prefer to think about it that way. My opinion is not the same as everybody else's. Some people think that it's, you know, it's, it's Dev for Ops or Ops for Dev. It, it really depends on who you ask. Do you think, um, like for myself, as a dedicated developer, um, do you think how much on the DevOps, the server side of thing, do you think a person who is developer focused, what should they focus on? Yeah, so, yeah, for sure. So imagine you're running a site like larachat.com or what have you, right? And you submit some code that might cause a bug, that kind of thing. Imagine you were the person holding the pager who was responsible for anything that you committed to the code base or in terms of scaling, uh, that kind of thing. So, yeah, sorry, I get you to think on LaraChat.co. But basically, imagine you're in charge of the scaling, right? What kind of decisions would you have to go through? And I'm not saying that everybody should be full stack, but at least thinking about what those decisions should be down the road. That being said, like a, an easy way to think about it is, what if you had a pager? Like, what if that wasn't something that somebody else had to do? What if ops wasn't someone's job and everyone's job, that kind of thing? So I, I'm not saying that everybody needs to be, uh, you know, tier three, tier four kind of ops people, but at least being able to triage stuff, I think, is is pretty handy. Nick, I know a lot of people in our in the Laravel world, um, they rely on Forge, which is a product, mm -hmm. uh, Forge and Envoy, and they're both product put forward by the Laravel, uh, by Taylor Rotwell, basically, and. Um, so they, what, what they do, if you haven't taken a look at them, uh, Forge allows you to provision a server, uh, and it runs a setup script with regard to setting up PHP, uh, MySQL, all, all your normal uh, length stack uh, stuff. Um, and then from there, you can do deployments from GitHub, and it will just do all the work for you, which makes it really simple for someone to come in, set up a DigitalOcean server or an Amazon Web Server, uh, and they don't have to ever FSH in, theoretically. And correct me if I'm wrong here, guys, Envoye is basically like the de deployment script. Am I correct there? Yep. Okay. So those are pretty awesome tools. And when you're, what you just mentioned about uh, uh, Chef and Puppet and uh, all of those uh, tools, it, it almost sounds like you have to have a, a little bit higher 
not not so much a higher knowledge, but a, an expectation that there's an, another level of learning that you're going to have to take on uh, beyond your programming theory. You're going to have to be able to understand how what it is you're setting up. You want to make sure you're setting up um, MySQL properly or Postgres. It's not that automated for you. Is that correct? Yeah, you got it. So it's it's more about um, width, I guess, than necessarily depth. So you don't need to know everything about MySQL, but you need to know where to find you know, the recipe or the Envoy script or how, what have you to be able to deploy to it on a regular basis, that kind of thing. So not necessarily saying, hey, database guy, you, you go do this kind of thing. Maybe leave uh, them halfway or think what that would involve, that kind of thing. So when it comes to DevOps, um, for you specifically, is there education you took or was this like a natural uh, thing that you learned um, like, is it something that a lot of developers can realistically pick up by reading things online, or do you think there's an actual need for proper education behind it? Yeah, for sure. To, to be honest, I'm not sure if you could take a DevOps course. There is one from AWS that I took. Uh, they call their, like, official DevOps training. It's okay if you just want to do AWS, but if you want to go to DigitalOcean, that kind of thing, it doesn't really apply, right? One of the best resources, and I actually got this from the uh, the DevOps Slack, the DevOps chat Slack, sorry, is something called Service for Hackers. That's actually quite good. So it's um it's basically uh not not a quick intro, but a very a, a, a wide intro of of what server technologies hackers or developers should should know. Um, I found that resource to be very handy to give to developers who work with me in this sort of process. Uh, to figure out, you know, what what kind of considerations we want we want to take before going down the project endeavor. Uh, there, there's quite a few books as well, but yeah, in terms of formalized training, I'm not sure there's much out there yet. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned server for hacker because uh, Chris Fidel is a member of Layer Chat and DevOps Chat. He's one of our uh, more well-known members, I guess. And I actually want to get him on on Layer Chat Live down the road. Maybe we'll have both of you guys to, again, to talk about more of the DevOps side of things down the road, which we, uh, it, it, to me, it's actually a, a really interesting topic in terms of learning how the server works, basically. Um, and one of the other things I think is really beneficial as a developer is uh, once you have an understanding of some of the server-side technologies, I feel that it makes you a stronger developer in terms of how you write your code you understand that, hey, I might be, be, I might just be paying for a $5 instance on DigitalOcean, which, what does it have, one or two gigs of RAM, which is plenty, but um, you don't want to write your code in a poor procedural manner, which can slow down the system. So once you start to understand the server technology, I think you become a better developer overall, and also you're worth more money in terms of salary, I, I would hope when you get hired somewhere and you know both technologies. Um, what if, on that note, I'm curious if there are any um, questions. What I'm curious about is there's a lot of uh, development teams out there which don't have a ded dedicated DevOps resource. There's a guy who knows just enough about how to FTP in or SSH in and, and you know, do the git command to you know, put the code on production server and so forth. They may not have, you know, a proper continuous delivery system, unit testing. There's a lot of companies, smaller companies out there that um, work in that manner. What I'm curious about, in in your opinion, at what point do you think a company would need to 
invest in a DevOps person and have that extra ace in their pocket, if they will. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I guess something will come to a breaking point. But to be honest, I, again, I really don't think you need to hire somebody who's called like a DevOps engineer or have a DevOps team. I think that's something that your dev team can either take on on their own or if they need to hire somebody who has that focus could do it. Generally, what I see is that if you've got this guy who's already doing what are essentially ops tasks, you could find a developer who might be more interested in it. I've also seen teams who do what they call no ops, right? So they'll share the responsibilities, say, like one week at a time. You get eight guys or eight, sorry, employees, and you might do it once every two months kind of thing. I've seen that uh, pattern, I guess you call it. I've also seen where you hire a whole ops team. The, the real long and short of it is when you're starting out with a smaller team, an ops team to run your infrastructure is actually not going to be cheap. And I, I think when it comes down to looking at your bottom line, sometimes it actually makes more sense to train people on the ops side, which to be honest, I think is easily trainable compared to the dev side. I've been in ops for a long time, so maybe I'm very biased, but in terms of you know, caring about your system, I think the developers who actually make the system will care more than anybody else. So teaching an ops person to care about code that you write as opposed to teaching yourself to, you know, give a shit about the code that you get out there, I think is a little bit harder. I think the uh, biggest problem I have with DevOps or really kind of just to touch on having responsibilities of developers and then having them have to do ops stuff is that it essentially is just decreasing your basically your rate as a developer because not only now are you responsible for writing the code, you're also responsible for certain ops uh, tasks and things. Like I've been in companies where you have a dedicated system admin versus companies where you just have a couple developers who on the fly fix things on the server. Um, I'm, I mean, I might be old school here, but I kind of feel like this whole DevOps uh, um, like culture is essentially just saying, you know, hey, we can get you to do double the work without paying you for it. So I, I think... And, and that's got to totally be the case, you know? Like, there's got to be some manager out there who's like, hey, you know what I could do? <laughs> I mean, but, I mean, in reality, though, it's like, it, it's 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 a good thing that they, to have that experience, to be able to know, you know, where is my code going? How does it get to the server? You know, how can I fix it in case someone else is gone or whatever? Um but yeah, I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I guess without a good way of saying it, I'm a big, uh, you know, I'm number one. So it's like, if you have, if you're going to ask me to do a task, you better be paying me more for it. If you're going to give me double responsibility, but, you know, you, you guys had talked about, uh, different things like forge and Envoyer and whatnot, which are great tools along, um, along with some of the other ones that are out there. Um, the problem that, I kind of see with those tools is that as we can see through some of the Lara chat uh, conversation is people only know that much. And I know you had touched on learning a little bit more. And the issue with that is that, yeah, you can deploy the server with a click of a button, but if something goes wrong with it, somebody hacks it, somebody gets your SSH key and gets in, well, now you're, you're you know, you just, your stuff's just going to shit the bed and you're not going to know what to do. But that's why you have, you know, I, I think when I started learning, uh, when I started learning DevOps stuff, you know, I just went straight to DigitalOcean and went through all their tutorials that they have on there. Um, you see tons of YouTube videos out there, and it, it kind of helped out when uh, it was when it could turn into a situation of uh, back in two, I think it was 2011, 
uh, I think it might have been 2011, I ran a web hosting company. And, you know, you get, when you run a low-end shared web hosting company, you have issues with your servers where people are going to send spam, they're going to try to hack the server or whatnot. Um, so gaining that knowledge beyond just knowing how to set the server up and deploy stuff to it helps in, help me and would help everyone else in critical situations where, like you had said, where, you know, somebody might, need to do some sort of band-aid fix or some quick fix until the actual system admin or the actual DevOps guy gets in. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess really I kind of went off on a trail there, but uh, yeah, the, 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 the main point was I, I'm still kind of old school about the whole DevOps thing and I haven't really bought into it yet because I have friends that are system admins. I have, you know, me who's primarily a developer, but I can also do the system stuff. So it's just kind of, it's kind of like, where are we going to go from here, and are these tools from that you can use to deploy servers, or are they just going to keep getting smarter to the point where we don't have to have a system admin and we don't have to have a DevOps guy? And at the end of the day, are our, our you know our our partners or our our colleagues going to be out of the job because these tools are just getting smarter and they're getting better? Well, what if you didn't have any servers? Yeah, I mean, there you go. I put, I put all my stuff in the cloud, and that's not even a server. So it's just, it's just who knows where it is. I mean, it's, it's gotten to the point now where people are talking about serverless, right, with Lambda, where they do, I think it's called the BFF pattern, the backend for frontend, where you've got, like, a static HTML page running some JavaScript that calls a Lambda function, that calls the AWS uh, API gateway, that then calls some Dynamo, that sends it back, sends it back to the JS. It's like, hey, I'm just hosting a static HTML page on GitHub. I pay for the API calls here and there. Like, where's where's the ops in there, right? Like, how does that even right, work? Yeah. The other side of that coin would be if you look at a company like Google, and I mean, they, they do a lot of things, right? Some things are good, some things are bad. One of the things they do is they their position, what we would traditionally call a systems admin, is an SRE. So it's a site reliability engineer, right? And these guys actually aren't systems admins. They're actually more, uh, they might be junior level coders, but they're, they're people who are more uh, steeped in development. And to be honest, like, when I went to school, I studied Java. And then I left school, and there were no Java jobs in the... Uh, Maritime. So what I learned was ops, and I guess for me the automation came naturally because I'm a pretty lazy person. So I don't want to do the same thing over and over again. I don't want to click that button, that kind of thing. So I, I took to the automation side, and I sort of I mean it's not it's not programming, but I'll call it scripting, right? But throughout the ages, I've just sort of uh, you know sharpened that saw, and, and it's become what we call DevOps today. But really, I think back in the day, we just called this systems administration. If you found a Unix sysadmin, chances are behind any good Unix sysadmin, he's got a bunch of bash scripts just sitting in a folder, he's got something made for every job, he just runs it, that kind of thing. So I think maybe what's old is new again might apply here as well. Yeah, that's a lot of a, it's kind of a lot of a cultural thing too with the industry is, you know, like you said, it used to be called a sysadmin, now it's kind of morphing into like the DevOps thing and, you know, when you get into, and, and kind of where, when you get into some of the startup stuff, it's like, their DevOps guy is literally like their lead developer and their dev and their server guy. So it's kind of uh, interesting the difference between where the scale of the company is versus the definition of their DevOps person or their DevOps department. Absolutely. We've got some guys in HQ that are like spring, spring boot developers that we call DevOps. And to be honest, they're, they do the deploy, they do the CI, the CD, they're, the database structure, like it's it's pretty amazing. You, you get some of the the ten times, a hundred times engineers. I'm, I'm not a big fan of those terms, but that they, they are out there. Yeah, when I was working in um, a couple startup companies, it was 
you wore many hats. Um, you did the server, you did the optimization, you made sure that MySQL didn't crash, and on and on and on and on. So I wanted to touch on you talking about being a, what was it, a, a, a lazy-ish person. Um, oh, super lazy. <laughs> I'm also really forgetful, so the two kind of go hand in hand for me. Okay. Because there's a saying I always hear, and I, I love it, is that in our industry we work the hardest to be lazy. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. And like I was saying about being forgetful, so if I'm working on something late Friday, you know, 8 p.m. kind of thing, that code, whatever it is I wrote, chances are Monday morning I'm going to forget it. So what I try to do is document as I go at least on the Fridays and the Mondays because I know I'm just going to forget. So over the years, I've sort of, like, I've been in this for about 15 years now. I know my bad habits, and I've sort of worked around them. Luckily enough, those have become skills now, but really it's because... You know, it, it wasn't great when I started out, like, learning to, uh, to remember the, the Perl script that you wrote on Friday and come in on Monday. I kind of think it's, it's not good. One of the things that I wanted to get to know from you, like uh, Ruth mentioned earlier, that some of our users, when we talk about DevOps, and they say, I don't know anything. Um, any, any good resources that you can pass on to us uh, to say, to, for people to learn. Uh, I'd, I'd love to get your advice on that. Yeah, so there was a really good book. I think it just got published maybe two weeks ago called Effective DevOps. Uh, I'll be honest, I haven't read the whole book. I had the, uh, the early access pass to it, so I read that part. But it was a fantastic introduction behind the history of what has become DevOps and sort of where it's going going forward. Uh, aside from that, for a few years now, I think the, uh, the book The Phoenix Project has been out there. I think this is more geared towards people who are under uh, maybe the system administration guys, but it's a, it's like an adventure novel for, for sysops or for sysadmins. And it, you might have some P PTSD when you're reading it. You know, there's like a trigger warning. That there's a lot of that uh, on-call stories, that kind of stuff that come up. But, yeah, I thought that was an excellent book. Um, so I'd, I'd recommend those two. So Effective DevOps and The Phoenix Project were a definite checkouts there. How about any online resources or tools that um, would help, you know, some about the, the developer, let's say, setting up a server, pushing deployment, uh, making right. sure our server is working? Yeah, so Dan mentioned the DigitalOcean guys, and I got to also plus one that. I mean, those are fantastic guys. I find myself looking at them as well when I'm getting into something. Um, they, they really go over most of the things that you would need to know in terms of setting up a server. And they're not always specific to DigitalOcean. So a lot of the times they'll be very generic and they'll say, and hey, if you're using a droplet, this is what that would look like kind of thing. So they're written in a way that is not, it's not that you can't take it out of DigitalOcean and use it elsewhere. They're, they're actually really, really good guides. Um, I mentioned servers for hackers earlier. Uh, there are a few questions on Quora that are good. But uh, in terms of like, uh, I guess I could recommend some podcasts if that's, if that's OK. One of them will be Arrested DevOps, which is quite good. No, no podcast. Share <laughs> them. Oh, no. sure, um, uh, we we have no competitors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Arrested DevOps is my uh, go-to. There is a chef bias in it, but they've also got uh, Bridget now, who's who's working with. I think it's uh, the uh, oh shoot, I forgot who it is. It's Pivotal. She's working for Pivotal Labs now. So two chef guys and uh, a Pivotal Labs lady. Uh, run it, and it's actually a fantastic podcast. I listen to it whenever it comes out. If you're in the enterprise space, I think it's called the Go Farm, which is a way to basically think about how do you change an enterprise from within. 
for DevOps. I, I'm not sure if you guys have lived through the, the agile shift or, or lean methodologies, but it's almost like these buzzwords come up once every five years kind of thing, and everybody's like, yeah, we got to go Six Sigma now. And, you know, you get sent off for training, ITIL, what have you. But uh, the, the Go Farm is really about um, the way that you can change an organization from within with DevOps as a focus, but it's, it's a really good way of thinking about how to, like, be that agent of change within your company. I think it's quite good. Interesting. I'm going to have to start finding some of these uh, books and podcasts and resources and start learning. Um, when when I think about when I started development, uh, managed hosts were kind of all the rage, I guess. You think of, uh, oh, what was their name? It's been Dreamhost, uh, for example. Uh, I spend five, six dollars a month and I have a simple server. Uh, they have their, their own software that helps me manage the system. Yeah, the, the one-click installs, right? I'm a happy yeah, master yeah. as well. I'm curious. So we, the, the trend seemed to have been, not, and I'm not saying that DreamHost is not popular anymore, but it was that that kind of uh, hosting service was the uh, the way it was, the, the, the way of the land at the time. And then we started transitioning into DigitalOcean, where we get the droplets, and it's within our power to do what we want within that VPS um, droplet. And you know Amazon Web Services, kind of the same idea. We have full power control in a way. Um, when and I've, I've been at some companies where they still rely on the um, managed hosting, and and it was kind of a, an interesting scenario for me to come from setting it up myself and being in control, and then going and it's all managed for me. And do you see a trend in either way, or do you figure that both sides can continue to work coherently? I'm curious about what the future might be. Yeah, I don't know. And I think before that, there was GeoCities, right? Like, let us host your HTML. I don't know. I, I kind of think they're all, they, they all seem to fit. Maybe, uh, I'm not sure if it's different story points along a path or different client bases, but. I mean, I definitely still use DreamHost. There's some stuff that they do that's just easier to do than everybody else. I also use Google Compute, and I've done the whole blog engine stuff. I really think it de depends what you're trying to do. There's certainly a, a good spot for that. I, I also do my own stuff in AWS. Right? It really depends on the level of control you're either comfortable giving up or that you're comfortable assuming on your own. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Use what you need. Um, one of the other things I'm curious about, I know we touched on some of the tools and so forth, but uh, one of the things I think I assume that a lot of developers might not have a great handle on is securing their server, um, which for myself, when I was uh, you know, taking care of our company server, I had to learn about certain tools like uh, fail to ban, uh, learn about IP tables, um, there's a couple other different ones. Maldetect comes to mind. Um, there's these tools out there, um, but sometimes there's not a lot of information for a developer to know that, hey, this is the right one for me. I'd love to hear if you've got any uh, go-to tools, um, the security, the, the uh, logging side of things for the server. Not so much the setting up, but just making sure your server continues humming and, and staying up. For sure, yeah, and I'll, I mean, I'll ask Dan about this as well because uh, I've got some very strong opinions about security. 
Uh, I guess at the end of the day, depending on what's at risk, I honestly think you should get someone who's security-minded involved. If you're handling anything to do with payment, either let someone else do that for you or get a professional involved. If you're handling PII, personally identifiable information, you got to think about that to begin with. That's, that's, not, like, that's a monumental task that you should not take on on your own. Uh, there's a reason there are consultants out there. Like this, this is where it starts to get expensive, right? So when to do uh, identity authentication and authorization, this is where people start using OpenID, Facebook, that kind of thing. So I guess what I'm trying to tell you here to, to answer the question specifically is, if you find that you're getting into a point where you need to secure that data and make sure that you've got it locked down, it may be worth thinking about a service that you could use. I know Stripe's being really popular these days for for payment, people have used PayPal in the past. I mentioned OpenID, Facebook Auth, there's also Google Auth. But when it comes to that kind of thing, it might actually be worth either having someone else do it, or if you plan on doing it in-house, getting someone to help you out. Interesting, because in the past, um, and I might have to smack my hand for this, but um, I would go on to DigitalOcean or even the Rack-based documentation and you know they would they would have these lines of how to set the IP tables and like copy and paste and run it blindly. And, and afterwards, I thought about it. What does that actually do? Did yeah. I could open up a can of worms here. And and you know you might have secured it for today, but a year down the road it might be different. Three years down the road, if that thing runs for five years, chances are it needs to be looked at. And, and maybe you're just going to assume that it's okay. I think. That's what worries me about those those kind of guys when it comes to security. For the most part, to be fair, like if you're in Amazon and ELB will help you out, you can lock that down pretty easily and set your servers behind it and do stuff. Uh, we mentioned SSH earlier, and you just mentioned fail to ban, but um, I'm a strong proponent for being very careful of what you do with SSH and rotating your keys. i got to give a plug to the HashiCorp guys here for something called Vault. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Vagrant, at least, uh, the, the HashiCorp. So they've come up with something called Vault, which is fantastic in terms of being able to rotate your keys. And on a personal level, something like OnePass or LastPass is definitely, a, I, I think, a must uh, to be able to go through and, and generate keys. But yeah, Dan, I, I'm really happy to hear what, what you get to say there, because by no means am I an expert here. <laughs> um, we know, as far as your SSH keys and securing your logins and whatnot, um, we've used in the past, I have a guy that also is in LairChat named uh, Aaron Lucas, who um, he is uh, an infrastructure guy, and, and he turned me on to uh, Duo. I don't know if you've heard of Duo, but basically, yeah, you can uh, install it onto your server, so when you go to log into it, it actually will get a... Uh, you'll get a login request sent to your phone and you can approve or deny it. So it's a good two-factor authentication on the server. And, and obviously, yeah, you still want to rotate your keys and you want to be able to keep everything secure. We use, uh, me and Aaron use, uh, um, what did you say? You said uh, LastPass. We use LastPass for a lot of our uh, enterprise credential sharing for our um, DDoS service that we're currently building. And... A lot of that is helpful. So that's a service that does DDoS for me, or that protects yeah, it'll, yeah, it'll do. It'll, well, you never know. It could do that. Um, <laughs> it'll do. Uh, it'll. It's basically to do DDoS protection for you. Um, and but then I know you pay a couple extra bucks, and maybe we'll DDoS someone for you. So you never know. <laughs> I mean, you never know what could happen. But um, yeah, and, and we use uh, 
we use Duo, we've used LastPass. So what do you do to, uh, to share key secrets? Do you use like Keybase or something like that to send the messages back and forth, or how does that work? Well, as far as uh, as far as our actual key credentials, um, it ends up being uh, how do we do that? It ends up being we generally just use our own keys and we don't actually share anything. So we have. No, that's even better, right? Like if you don't have to share anything. Right. Yeah, we don't have to share any of the keys. We use our own. Um, usually, what we end up doing is you know you provision a server, you get. It, uh, you have an SSH key that's already on there. Um, then we go in. He'll add his key. I'll add my key. We'll rip off. We'll rip out the default or the the first key. Then it's just our keys on there. Um, and then when it comes down to rotating, then we can each go in and update our own keys, and we don't have to worry about bugging each other or sharing things across systems or whatever. I mean, sometimes I'll write it on a piece of paper and mail it to him. You know, so we'll just keep it old school. Um, but. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much the primary security thing there. Um, I mean, I've done things where you take uh, SSH off of port 22 and you move it to somewhere else. Um, sometimes, depending on your infrastructure, that could work. Uh, when we do a lot of internal stuff, we can move the port to a different port, and then we don't have to worry about you know things that need to SSH in on port 22. Um, then you throw in like UFW, IP tables, something like that to get an even further layer to lock things down. Um, I'm not saying rely only on a firewall, obviously, but um, that'll do a really good thing as far as routing traffic. We've had, I've had, uh, when I used to do hosting, it was, uh, you know, we'd have a lot of uh, IP spam coming from China, Russia, and it would just constantly overload just our servers. Just all of Kazakhstan kind of thing? Right, pretty much. <laughs> but you know, you can set, uh, we use, uh, you can set it to, we would automatically block IPs as they were coming through as malicious, block full countries, uh, or on like port 22, open it up only to allow um, like company VPNs and whatnot. Also, there's another point when you connect to a server, you know, you use a company VPN with your own login information and Whatnot. That way, if you're working from home or if you're working in the office and you need to connect to a remote server, you either are on your company's static IP address or your uh, VPN. I got that right. Static, right? I get the static and the uh, other one. I get, I get those confused. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's a lot of the a lot of the security stuff is just making sure stuff's locked down. But like uh, like Ryan was saying, it's it's if you're going to start getting into payments and you're going to start getting into stuff that you actually need to secure, like social security numbers or anything that is PCI compliant, any of that, it's best to hire a consultant that has that security stuff in mind and knows exactly what you're doing or what they're doing. The PCI, uh, I know that the PCI, and you guys probably know this too, the PCI standards are pretty complex. And even if you miss one I just thing, went through an audit, man, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it can you miss one if you don't know what you're doing miss one thing and they're just like, eh, well, sorry. But, uh, yeah, so definitely look at, at when you get to that scale, looking at a consultant or getting somebody who actually is going to be focused on that kind of a, a or that kind of a, a field. Yeah, I definitely agree there because I remember when I was trying to set all of this up back in our, we were a three or four man shop at the time and uh, I set up mail to ban and then I ended up banning my own IP. <laughs> Isn't isn't that always the way fail the ban works? It's like you know it's working because you ban yourself immediately. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know you've done uh, done it right to a degree. Um, and then I, I remember having to try and figure out how the hell I was supposed to unban my IP, and it would. I think we lost a day there. But, it's like um, shrouding a server, right? You don't know if it's there or not because yeah. you can't see it. Pretty much. Um, 
do you think there's anything cool coming up in the DevOps tech stack that's interesting? Something that might, uh, like I know Vagrant is changing into auto or they're releasing auto as a new uh, way of working with Vagrant? Yeah, so it looks like auto is a superset that includes Vagrant technology as well as some Docker stuff. I'm not sure if it's, uh, it's production ready yet, but it's, it's there. It also seems to integrate with Packer quite a bit. I'm not sure if you guys have used that, but being able to make Vagrant images, Amazon AMIs or what have you, to be able to deploy to, to the cloud, deploy locally, deploy to VMware, what have you. Uh, it's, it's actually pretty cool. We're big proponents of the HashiCorp tool set in, in our place of work here. So um, I think if it, on that end, so if you've used Vagrant and you've heard of uh, vaults, uh, or, or maybe not. You also might like to look at the console, which is their key value store. And I believe it's a, uh, it runs a consensus algorithm, so it can actually do things like cluster very easily for you, which is something that's very handy to have when you're thinking about Amazon, different zones. Uh, you know, there's a, Amazon's got their big event coming up. Generally, they'll do a push before that happens. Something in a zone might fail. It's kind of, if you're in your US East one, you know, every year, reInvent comes around, there's going to be something going down. So not that I don't love Amazon, but it might be time to look at uh, like databases that can do that kind of replication. Consoles are a really good key value store that can do that. Um, I mentioned Vault before. Uh, if you guys uh, are looking to run something like GitHub in-house, GitLab CI, uh, the newest version, the community edition, which is open source, will do uh, continuous integration quite easily for you using a YAML file. Uh, so we'll do things like build, deploy, report back, run your automated tests. It's it's quite nice, and it's it's really fast. That sounds pretty awesome. A lot of stuff to check out. I also want to jump back into what you mentioned about hiring or finding a resource that uh, when when you start to get to that level of scale where you need that uh, extra intelligence to set up a service properly, personal story for me, again, trying to figure it out how to do myself. I set up a Mongo server, had a cron script pulling in data, and I pulled in some running against a Twitter API, and I pulled in a really popular hashtag. I didn't think anything of it. And then uh, I think it was about maybe a week or two later, I came back to it because I, I had done the work. I'd forgotten about it, and I came back. I SSH'd in. And my server started crashing. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then I, I looked at the file size, and the MongoDB just it just collected and collected and collected. And um, and then I I had I had like it was the strangest sensation of, of cold sweats. Sweating, <laughs> my shirt was soaked, but it was cold. It was like oh my god. It's like I I just brought down my own server, and I also probably have a bill for a couple hundred bucks coming towards me because of my own stupidity. And um, so I, luckily, it was on Amazon, so I could go into their console and change the size of the, uh, the, the hard drive, so to speak. Um, but it, it's, uh, I don't think I'm a stupid developer, but <laughs> it's really easy to make these little mistakes unless you have that experience uh, on the DevOps or the system ops or the server side technology to know, oh, that's not a, not a good idea to let your uh, database run on a cron script over two weeks without checking it, for example. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a heavy proponent in something like uh, apprenticeship or mentoring. I really think learning from others is probably the best way to do this. Like I said, there's no formal training. 
but one of the <laughs> we'll do a bit of a shout out here. But one of the things I use, and, and it's it's kind of embarrassing, but I often actually will ask busy DevOps chat Slack people like, hey, I'm about to do this. Have you gone down this path before? What do you think of it? Uh, if not in there, there's a lot of really good IRC channels on uh, freenode.net. Typically has most of the ones that I use, but just running it out there, using it as like a like an RFC process. So uh, request your comments saying, hey, I'm about to deploy Mongo and hook it up to a Twitter firehose. Have you guys done that before? And you might say, oh, yeah, man, you might want to set up a billing alert before you set that out in the wild because chances are it's, it's going to cost you quite a bit of money, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'll just defer to the masses and, and ask people what they think, basically, before, before going. But, yeah, then whatever you're Sorry, I muted myself there. How do you typically go about these problems before you uh, set off into a grand adventure? <laughs> say that um, again? So, so basically the question is, like, you're, you're about to do something. You're about to set out a stack or make a product, that kind of thing. It, it might be something that, uh, you know, you, you get some IP around it. In terms of the methodology, do you ever run that past people or, or ask the, the crowd what they think about it? Or you just generally do, do it, make mistakes, and don't do it again kind of thing? Oh, yeah. Um, I didn't really catch anything you just said. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. But um, as far as I think you were saying... About like, are, are, like, are you saying like when we deploy something, do we? Maybe, maybe even before that. So our, our example was right. So if we hook up Mongo to the Twitter firehose, right? I mean, I've I've done something like this before. Yeah, the, the first thing that's gonna happen is it's gonna go really big, right? That's that's the first step. I, I mean, it, hindsight being 2020, it might be a question that you could ask somebody. That's typically what I do. Like I typically go on IRC and say, hey, I'm about to do this. What do you guys think? Kind of thing. Internally, we've got oh, a process okay. that's similar, like an RFC process, a request or comments process. Uh, sometimes it could be a JIRA ticket or a Confluence page, and then you ask people in the comments, add mention them, that kind of thing. But generally, yeah. before I set out on this this amazing adventure, I'll typically ask somebody, hey, I'm about to set up like a 16-core Mesosphere server and deploy Docker to it, do you think this would cause any issues? Maybe HQ would get mad about the billing, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it uh, it generally depends on what I'm doing. Uh, sometimes I'm just balls at the wall, let's do it and see what happens. Um, other times it's uh, depending on if it's going into, like if it's something that's going directly into production and it's, you know, it's obviously when I'm going to put something in production, I go through and I test it and whatnot. But I was going to say, like you wouldn't test that code, would you? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I test in production. I think that's the, the general... Test, test in production, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, you don't know so if it's green blue or... Yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, I'll ask... Uh, sometimes I, I talk to some of the people in Lair Chat about... Um, I think one of the examples was I did a GitHub integration, and I had asked uh, Opinion and Front Porch about, uh, you know, when I already have a user registered, what is a good practice to handle if they go to try to log in through GitHub or whatnot? And uh, I think Riz and a couple other people mentioned, like, uh, you know, just, I think Riz said something like, uh, you know, if you're validating them through GitHub, go ahead and just put, just take their email and just attach their GitHub ID to it so they can log in either way. A couple other people said, you know, just send them back to the page and say you've already registered with your email and password, log in using that. Um, but yeah, and then for some larger scale stuff, I have a couple people I'll ask, or I'll just generally, like you do, go into a chat and be like, "What? Any any experience doing this or that? And what's going to happen if I throw this in there? Is it going to blow up in my face or cause me to have a, a huge Sean style AWS bill or whatnot?" But yeah, that's kind of kind of I kind of agree with you there, where it's just you know better to ask than to have a bad experience. Yeah, I think. Um... 
by talking about some of my personal experiences here, I think I'm going to start seeing on our chat pulling a Sean. And, and I gotta say, like it's easy to laugh at this stuff in hindsight, but over 15 years, I made a, like an enormous amount of just dumb mistakes, and I'll probably never do them again. But when when we've got like a, I don't know, somebody who's coming in as an intern or a, a co-op, I can say, hey, by the way, this happened to be in the past. We can laugh about it now, but but like now that I've told you, chances are you won't do that. Kind of thing. So we managed to fill up almost the whole hour of this DevOps topic, and I, I don't even think we scratch the surface. It's <laughs> a pretty big subject. Yeah. But for the amount of time we have, um, what I want to do now is jump into the Q&A. Riz has been uh, going through and collecting the questions that our community has. Uh, Riz, go ahead and, and take that over. All right. So I think there's actually a lot of questions. So let's just try and keep them quick. I guess like sentence or two each should be good um, because people actually have a lot of questions for DevOps. Off the bat, Eduardo on, on Slack, he asked, how do you tell when something is over-engineered and when that over-engineering is valid and you actually need it? And to carry on from a different question by uh, I received by direct message is, where is your position in the company hierarchy? Do you, as DevOps, have the right to control the developers or the developers tell you what they want? Brian, what do you say? No, <laughs> this is an or question, right? Um, yeah, so you know, I, I don't really think about who tells people to do what. I mean, we're all on the same team. That's that's kind of my philosophy. Uh, what was the first question, though? How do you tell when it's if something is over-engineered when you're using oh, yeah, too yeah. much microservices, that kind of stuff? Ask why five times. Dan, you got to. <laughs> I, I don't have a thought on that. <laughs> okay, moving on. This is also to direct message. I suck at front end. Do DevOps have any front end responsibilities testing web, mobile, or otherwise? Is there any, Dan? Is there any front end stuff to test? Do you have any front end responsibilities oh, yeah. that you care about? Um, as, well, there's a lot of uh, stuff that you can test using uh, like Selenium WebDriver or when you're running through your continuous integration. Um, like with Laravel, you have built in test suites that you can run as far as like running your logins and running your registrations and whatever. Uh, so look at like Laravel tests and look at stuff as far as a con uh, continuous integration goes. And that's really kind of that and Selenium WebDriver are really where you can test front end um, beyond just doing manual look at it and see how it how it how it looks testing. Anything else, Ryan? Yeah, so I'm a bootstrap, I guess. Is, is it okay to say that? If I have to do anything front-end based that deals with the back-end, I'm just going to slap some bootstrap on it, just rub it on there, call it gold. Uh, in terms of testing, so yeah, Selenium WebDriver is actually fantastic. The other thing I've noticed is pretty handy is uh, PhantomJS is quite good. And I've also had some good luck with uh, just using something called iMacros, which is a plugin for either Chrome or Firefox. Uh, at the end of the day, chances are you're going to have to test something manually. iMacros can at least help you with the nitty-gritty of, like, yeah, I need to do this part, but I need to test this part kind of thing. So it allows you to basically do what it says, like run a macro for your browser, fill in forms, that kind of stuff. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So you do have responsibilities. So yes, I'm sorry, Mr. Wants to be a DevOps. Probably not. <laughs> okay, next up. Uh, so there are a lot of risks involved when you're a DevOps guy. Because as a programmer, you have the quality assurance guys in the back end taking care of things. You have bug reports. You have versions. You have iterations. As a DevOps guy, if you mess up, it's directly financial to your company. So how do you deal with that? And especially as a new DevOps guy, how do you handle that high risk 
Anything, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, uh, run things in duplicate, triplicate, that kind of thing. Make sure that you've got failover. Make sure you test your business continuity plan and your DR plan. Those are big topics, but basically make sure that any region going down, any zone going down, won't cause you any problems. That doesn't mean it needs to come up immediately, but at least that you've planned for it in the beginning, I think. Even if it's a 404 page that says, hey, we're expanding right now, it might take a couple minutes to come out. I'm sure you guys remember the fail well, right, when Twitter was expanding really rapidly. It happens. People know you're a startup. Stuff's going to go down, but at least make sure that you've covered that possibility. Anything else, Dan, you want to add on? Uh, yeah, basically just know your shit and use your resources. It's like if you don't know what's going to happen or if you have a question about something, definitely use your resources around you and your on your team, in your office, on the Internet, Google, whatever you need to do to get things done. And like Ryan had said, check everything twice, test, 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 and just make sure that you have all your bases covered before you take something live. That's basically common sense, I guess. Yeah. And common so, sense isn't so common, though. <laughs> I generally object to that. That is true. Yeah, I guess it's something you pick up over time. Moving on to the next one. Uh, this is a guy from, I assume, has just been staying on DigitalOcean all this entire time or Linode or something like that. Do I have to care about all this cloud stuff? AWS, like, 50 different services with a million different XML config authorization configuration files. Do I need to care, or can I just stay on my VPS for the time being? Ryan? How big do you want to get? Uh, some of the times you can just shove Cloudflare in front of it, and they'll handle the traffic that you need. I, I would actually suggest, similar to the last question, like if your site can be brought down to a single static HTML file, and that can represent the static content of where most people land, and then the dynamic content is handled in the back end, stick something like, uh, yeah, like Cloudflare or some other varnish, I think, must be popular with some PHP devs somewhere, that kind of stuff, right? Like try caching as a first step. Dan, anything else? Yeah, you can, uh, it really just depends on your scale and your finances. Um, you know, I'm a one-man startup with my weather API, and it's I don't have that much money to throw at it. So rather than using like Elastic Load Balancer from AWS, I'll throw up uh, DigitalOcean and put a Hot Proxy on front of it or HA Proxy, um, which is a free load balancing tool that uh, is open source and does wonders. So there's a bunch of tools out there that you can stay on your VPS that you currently have, and as you scale, you can go ahead and add, and you can do things, you don't necessarily have to jump over to AWS and throw out the, the money that it costs to keep that infrastructure up. You can use open source tools that will be able to keep you growing at your scale, and then once you're funded or once you start making money, then you can go ahead and move over to uh, a better cloud platform. I'm going to start quoting you guys because every time we get somebody on Slack asking about, hey, do I need that gigantic 16-core EC2 server, I'm just going to point out this session. You I think that's it my Amazon referral code is this. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can take my code, and then I'll tell them. Right. I think that's, that's for all our questions. So thank you very much. Sean, go ahead. Yeah, I, guess, um, I was going to make a joke about it being a bad time to say that Amazon is our sponsor, but they're not really. Um, that is a really awful joke. I'm very sorry for having said that. Um, so to uh, end this episode, uh, again, we talked a lot about DevOps, and we really didn't even touch, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if we even touched 2% of what is out there. So maybe it's something, uh, if there's interest, we can uh, start uh, gauging some interest from the community, see who uh, out there is interested in specific DevOps topics, though. Maybe we could have Ryan and Dan come back on. Uh, maybe we'll try and get Chris Bedale to come on, and maybe we'll talk about specific things, like HA proxy, uh, Nginx configuration, uh, fail to ban, 
um, how not to be stupid uh, as a startup lead, um, etc. So, uh, with that being said, thank you so much, Dan, and thank you so much, Ryan, for coming on our show. Um, again, yes, I think we need to do more of a DevOps uh, discussion, so we'll get back on that. And thank you, uh, Riz, for coming on and uh, doing the usual news and QA for us and keeping us organized. And with that being said, thank you all. Uh, it's our 11th show. We'll see you in two weeks for our 12th show. We are always looking for people who want to come on or suggest topics and get involved. This is a community. Uh, it's a community run show, so uh, where anybody can come on. I mean, we have Dan. Like, <laughs> we, we let him come on. I know. I, I I didn't think you would. I was really excited. I'm happy you're here. Um, and actually, one thing I wanted to shout out was like Dan was one of the people who probably deserve the most uh, thanks for their chat live. Like I know I wanted to do a video casting type of thing, and Dan really helped me get it organized and get it going. Um, unfortunately, he had some schedule conflict, and now we're finally able to have Dan on. Um, so thank you, Dan. Yeah, thanks. All right, well, we'll end it here. So thank you, Dan and Ryan and Riz, and we'll see everybody in two weeks. All right. Thank you. Thank you.